You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. People are beginning to wake up to the downside of the tech world. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We need to find ways to share this wealth so that people aren't suffering on the streets. You're giving your time to help others, and in the process, it helps you as well. The more people who see what happens over in the courthouse and know what's really going on, people would really be horrified. This is KCBS In-Depth. There's been a lot of new lessons to learn for Bay Area residents since we began life on coronavirus lockdown. How to get our groceries, how to work from home, how to be a parent when the kids are home all the time. But one lesson that could still use some more work, it seems, socially distancing properly. And following a weekend of crowded parks and beaches, some public officials are getting frustrated. Whether or not we're going to have more people get sick, they are. And what happens if it's your grandmother? What happens if it's your uncle? And what happens if we don't have a bed for them to be in because they got sick? I'm Keith Menconi. This is KCBS In-Depth. And today in the program, we're going to discuss why some of our social distancing hasn't been distant enough and how we can do it better. We've closed schools. We've closed workplaces. There's a heavy toll. But then if we go and undo it... We're taking all the pain and we're not getting any of the public health benefit. Then in the second half of the program, well, part of staying safe in this pandemic means keeping our homes clean and virus free. So we'll hear from an infectious disease expert to get the same advice she's giving to her own friends and family. High touch surfaces, make sure those are being clean and I'm including stones in that. All that and more coming up on KCBS In-Depth. First up, how to socially distance better. Well, the surest sign that not everyone is playing quite by the social distancing rules right now comes in the forms of the crowds of people who have been flocking to the many parks and beaches that have remained open. Now, obviously it is important to stay healthy and get outdoors during this time, but those public spaces have at times become so crowded that authorities have had to clamp down, closing parking lots at some and completely shutting down others. So, as familiar as we have all become with this tiresome buzzword, social distancing, it seems we still have more brushing up to do. Joining us now, then, to lay down some knowledge is social epidemiologist Carolyn Canusio, who is the director of research at the Center for Public Health Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks for joining us, Professor Canusio. So glad to be with you. All right. So since we have been seeing so many issues with social distancing over the last two weeks, let's just really start with the basic basics. Remind us, what is social distancing and why is this the main tool that public health experts are going to to fight this outbreak? Social distancing is actually one of the most powerful public health tools we have to control the spread of this new and deadly virus. What we're trying to do is limit our face-to-face contacts and limit our involvement in the public sphere of life so that we can deprive this virus of its next susceptible host. We want to keep that virus from moving from one person to the next. The best way to do that is to stay at home and to stay away from people outside your immediate household. 
Right. And that's all simple enough. But I feel like what we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks is people looking for the loopholes, looking for those gray areas. Because, you know, when public health officials gave us those stay at home orders, there was a long list of exceptions and people are still going out. They're still seeing, you know, what is okay and what's not okay. And I I suppose maybe just to bottom line this thing, bottom line is you should be staying away from as many people as you possibly can outside of the folks in your own household. It's absolutely the case that we need to limit our face-to-face contacts with other people. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that as people have asked me about social distancing over the last several weeks, everyone is in search of the magic loophole that will allow them to continue to have a relatively normal existence and a social existence. And the truth is that if you're doing social distancing right at this moment, your life should look very, very different than it looks on any normal day. This is not a normal time and we need people to be aggressive and rigorous about their interpretations of social distancing so that we can control the spread. If you look at what happened in China, China really cracked down and kept people in their homes. A major difference I see in Philadelphia, and it sounds like this is happening in the Bay Area too, is that people aren't going to work, but they now are using their time in public in parks and they're congregating and they somehow think that small gatherings in private homes are exempt. The truth is that with each additional social contact we have, we increase the risk that we may infect someone else or that we may be infected. So it's critically, critically important for people to limit their social contacts. Yeah. And to throw in a a personal example to illustrate some of the things that I'm worried about, I I live in a house with three other roommates. And uh, about a week ago, one of my roommates went on a bike ride with his sister. And this got me a little bit worried because I'm somebody who's still going out into public to report occasionally, being as careful as I absolutely can. But still, you know, that puts me at somewhat heightened risk. And I know that my roommate's sister lives with their 70-plus-year-old mother. And so that means that if I get sick, that's a straight line of transmission to this person that is at higher risk. And I don't know, That's I'm not sure that everybody is thinking about this in those terms right now. Absolutely. So this is really key. Every contact within your network should really be a closed loop. You shouldn't open that loop to others. You have to avoid that as much as possible because there's a vulnerability introduced in both directions for your household and for other households. So I have been asked many times about the idea of, for example, two households partnering up and coming up with a pact that just those two households will provide mutual aid and social contact. The difficulty, of course, is that people belong to the essential workforce category and have to go out and work. So it's hard to find two households that can really maintain this kind of closed loop system. In addition, I think it's a big trust exercise to enter into that kind of pact with another household. How well do you know that that other household is adhering to the rules that you set? So people have to recognize that we introduce vulnerabilities every time we loosen the 
constraints. Yeah. And another challenge of all this is that we are dealing with a threat that's totally invisible. So it's really difficult to visualize what it is that we're up against. So if you could address the thought that I imagine a lot of people have that, you know, maybe I am around other people occasionally, but those people are not coughing, they're not sneezing. Therefore, you know, there's really no way that they could be getting the virus on me. Could you address that thought? So over the past few weeks, the scientific evidence has been accruing to suggest that people can spread the virus when they're asymptomatic, when they're showing no symptoms. And that, of course, is a huge public health challenge because we can no longer say, take your temperature. And if you're having a fever, don't come over to the play date or to our little dinner party or cocktail party. Symptoms can't be used as a guide to um, whether or not somebody can transmit the virus. So that's one thing that's challenging. The other thing that's challenging is that we now know that the virus can be detected in the air for at least three hours in an enclosed space. So there's the potential that as we learn more, we're going to learn that the virus can really be transmitted in an airborne fashion, which would mean that enclosed spaces might be posing a hazard even if there's not another person visible there. So I I put a little caveat in there with uh, we don't know for sure. However, both of those evolving ways of thinking have made me in the last two weeks think even more conservatively and cautiously about the ways I want to operate and want other people to operate. We should really be limiting all of our contact with the outside world. And in public, it's really important. I understand the drive to get exercise. I need it every day in order to cope too. But it's so important to find the empty places. Don't go out and have a picnic with friends. Don't get your jogging group to get together and go for a run together. I've seen a lot of that in the parks. And it's demoralizing to me because we've instituted these measures. We've closed schools. We've closed workplaces. There's a heavy toll taken by just those measures. But then if we go and undo it by congregating in our parks, we're taking all the pain of those measures and we're not getting any of the public health benefit or we're not getting the whole public health benefit. So let's make this work. Do it right. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that that's even a possibility after all of this sacrifice is uh, fairly, fairly troubling and fairly sobering. Um, switching gears just a little bit. I mean, I, I know that we did say a second ago that uh, we are not supposed to be looking for the loopholes here, but uh, let me try one of them out on you just because I'm sure that many of our listeners might have something like this in mind. Let's say that I was, let's go back to that biking example from a second ago. Let, let's say that I agreed with my friends, you know, we're going to go out on this bike ride together, but this whole time we're going to make sure that we stay at least six feet apart is, is that okay? Am I putting myself at any greater risk if we have that understanding in place with one another right up front? So in concept, it sounds fine. And then in practice, I see people breaking all the rules. So that's why the loopholes are so dangerous, because people want permission from an expert who says, it's cool, go on a bike ride or go on a run together and just stay six feet apart. But as a person who studies human behavior, I know that human beings are so fallible and we drop into our old patterns easily. 
someone drops their water bottle, we bend down to pick it up for them. You know, somebody, a child falls off their bike, we go to pick them up, obviously. So every interaction that we engage in that loosens these rules presents new opportunities to fail and to increase our exposures. So that's why one of the things I've said is, if you wanna have a buddy you walk with, maybe try to do it with one person, not a group, and try to do it with that same person again and again. And if you're a person who can limit your public face-to-face -face interactions outside the home, try to pick a buddy who's also in that same situation. You know, for example, my emergency department uh, physician friends uh, live in the neighborhood. They're some of my closest friends, but we're not getting together and socializing. Uh, one did come this morning and texted me and said, I'm going to stand in the park behind your house. Can you come out to your deck and talk to me? So that was a structural barrier that kept us from getting close together. Um, and I felt comfortable that we were both being safe. But just know that the more you try to push and bend the rules, the more opportunities there will be for somebody to get sick. Mm. All right. Well, uh, closing out the conversation, it's pretty clear at this point that regardless of whatever social distancing measures we put in place, the next few weeks are going to be very challenging for many regions throughout the country. We are going to see those case numbers climb. We are going to see the deaths tragically climb as well. What would you say to those folks that are seeing those climbing numbers and despairing in some way, uh, thinking that, you know, after all this, perhaps social distancing really isn't working? What would you say to those folks? Thank you for asking this question, because it's one that bears repeating again and again. We have to understand that the people who are getting sick now were exposed two or more weeks ago because it takes a while for the virus to incubate and for symptoms to appear. And then it's not on day one of symptoms that people tend to present in the emergency room. So it's this protracted process of exposure and then development of the disease and then worsening of the disease to the point that people need medical care. So we have to recognize that there is going to be a delay. We will not see the impact of our social distancing measures until several weeks from now. So we have to keep at it, knowing that if it is done properly, it will drive down the rates of transmission. It is so important for us to keep at it. Don't lose faith, don't lose heart, even though you will see a surge in cases in many parts of the country over the coming weeks. All right, well, there you have it. A, a very helpful perspective as we continue into this unprecedented time that we're living through. We have been speaking there to Carolyn Canusio. She, once again, is the Director of Research at the Center for Public Health Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. Carolyn Canusio, thanks so much for joining KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for having me and be well. Yeah, you too. Thanks. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth a weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. Today, we're discussing the steps we should all be taking to stop the spread of coronavirus in our communities. We just heard about the importance of social distancing and how to do it properly. But if we are going to stay bunkered down in our homes, we better make sure those homes are also virus-free. So up next, maybe for the first time ever in this program's decades-long run, we're going to be getting some cleaning advice. 
for that, we are joined now by Annalise Roquet-Gardner. She is a clinical fellow of infectious diseases at UC San Francisco. Annalise, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. All right. So we are going to get into the advice, advice portion in just a second. But first, wanted to get a little bit more grounded in this topic. Now, obviously, it's thought that the main way this virus is spreading is through person-to-person contact. One person sneezes or coughs, and that gives it to somebody else nearby, not too far away. But we've also been hearing about all these studies that are suggesting that the virus can live on surfaces like plastic surfaces, metal surfaces for days at a time. So when it comes to this other method of transfer, I guess the uh, the surface to person transfer, how worried about that should we be? Uh, so that I, I think your point, the, the first point you made is the most critical one that I want people to remember, which is uh, obviously person to person spread uh, or community spread is what we're seeing right now, primarily in most of the United States. And the, the instance of sneezing, um, you're next to someone, you're, uh, someone is coughing, you're next to them. Uh, that is what uh, we should all be most concerned about right now, um, and that is the, uh, the importance of social distancing um, is tied to that. Uh, the, the second aspect, I would put the, the surfaces under um, the, the first mode of transmission, and that is, uh, I, I think right now, if uh, the majority of people in the Bay Area hopefully are staying in their homes, um, sheltering in place, but for those that um, are venturing out for errands, um, or people that are essential employees and are uh, going into work and um, having exposure to different environments and possibly to different people, uh, I, I do think that becomes more critical for healthcare workers like myself. Um, I, that is quite important because we're obviously coming into the hospital every day um, and um, high-touch things that we carry around, such as our pagers, such as phones, um, glasses, those are things that um, in the right context, the virus could be on. Uh, and we want to make sure that um, we clean those before um, we go home to make sure that um, the people that we live with, um, our loved ones are also safe. Um, and that is goes for anyone that is um, going out to uh, to areas uh, where there's uh, uh, there, there's a lot of mingling, there's a lot of people right now. And just to frame this up a little bit more, so you are somebody who works in a clinical setting, so obviously you need to be very concerned with cleanliness and making sure that the transmission is stopped wherever possible. And you were also telling me that uh, your friends and family members have been coming to you for advice for how they can protect themselves and protect their home. So I'm wondering if you could share that advice with our listeners now. And let's just start with, because, you know, not everybody is going to be listening to the end. Let's just start with what is the number one thing that if somebody is listening right now, you would hope that they would get away from this conversation? I I want people to remember high-touch surfaces. High-touch surfaces, make sure those are being clean. And I'm including phones in that because um, we all have a phone nowadays. A lot of us are tied to that phone for a lot of the day. Um, and we need to make sure that um, that is being clean on a daily basis. All right. So clean those high-touch surfaces. We're talking doorknobs, uh, the front of the microwave, faucets, and as you just suggested right there, phones as well. It's uh, amazing when you start thinking about it how many times uh, you touch your phone throughout the day. So let's get to the how do you clean those things? What are the cleaning products or compounds that we could be using to kill this virus? What actually kills this thing? 
Well, the good thing is that most commercially available uh, cleaning products will be able to kill coronavirus. Obviously, we focus and um, we encourage people to use bleach um, uh, being a common household product, cleaning product that a lot of us have. Um, alcohol solutions are also important, but remembering that it needs to be at least 70% uh, alcohol. Um, and then hydrogen peroxide as well. But most commercially available products, um, uh, which have some component of those three things I mentioned, the alcohol, the bleach, and the hydrogen peroxide in them, um, they kill coronavirus. And generally, um, the, the, the term for this are EPA-registered household disinfectants. And I know most of us um, don't usually take a look at the, the, the cleaning bottles extensively. But for the, uh, for the most part, everything that you're getting in the supermarket will have that, um, that little seal on it. And um, that will be able to eradicate coronavirus. So I guess the good news there is that while the Clorox wipes and the Lysol spray may be sold out at your local supermarket, a lot of the stuff that you're talking about there is much more widely available. You can just find it in your own home, mix it up yourself. Absolutely. And I just want to note that when people are using any of these products, it's really important to wear gloves, um, disposable gloves if you have them, um, just to make sure uh, they have some irritant effect, obviously, on your hands. And you want to make sure you're keeping your hands um, safe when using these products. Right. And well, we should also note, you mentioned uh, phones a second ago. You you do have to check with the instructions for your phone how to clean it because some are very sensitive to some of the products that we're talking about here, especially uh, bleach. You really don't want to use bleach on a lot of your electronics. Let's get now to uh, how you actually use those products on these surfaces. What should people be keeping in mind about the best way to use some of these cleaners to kill this virus? So um, starting with uh, figuring out whether that surface is dirty at baseline or not, um, if it's visibly soiled, um, what I would tell people is that um, it should first be cleaned using soap and water prior to disinfection. Um, that's a kitchen counter that has uh, food or has scraps or anything on it. So that's the first step. And then um, we go to, let's just say bleach. We're using bleach, making sure that we're diluting that bleach properly. Obviously, um, bleach can be very caustic, and so we want to make sure that we're diluting it in water. And generally what I tell um, people and use in my own home um, is around five tablespoons uh, of bleach per gallon of water, about four teaspoons per about a quart of water is going to be the the um, the um, uh, breakdown of uh, the dilution that you want to use. So starting with um, if it's dirty, first let's clean with soap and water. And then um, if you have rags handy, if you have paper towels handy, um, using that diluted bleach solution to clean those hard um, uh, hard surfaces first. And then is there a certain amount of time you want to leave that bleach on the surface before you wipe it off? Uh, I, yes. I, I, you want to clean first and then make sure everything's dry and then um, go ahead with um, the bleach solution and then make sure that is dry as well. Mm. And, and then what about soft surfaces? Like, for example, I have a gear bag that I bring out with me uh, every day to work. What, what, how should I clean something like that? So I, I think taking a step back, it's the first the question of whether that should be cleaned. Um, and I, I, we're talking, we first talked about high touch surfaces in our home and things that we're touching throughout the day. We know that coronavirus lives, um, for example, lives roughly about a day on cardboard. On stainless steel, it lives about three days. 
Um, the, the information and the data that we have about other surfaces, I would say at this point, um, we're starting to gain more information, but um, the studies are, are limited. And so I personally, I would say that um, for things like my handbag, um, I do not clean it on a daily basis. Um, and I, I think I would, I think it would be difficult um, to know um, if it would be effective to clean um, because we don't know the extent of how long the virus is going to live on there or if it's even going to live on there. Now, what about when you're returning to your home? There's always the possibility that you've picked up something on your clothing or your hands or something that you've been carrying. Do you have any special procedure that you go through when you get home to clean yourself off and make sure you're not tracking anything in? Uh, so I, I will tell you what, what, again, what I tell my parents and what I tell my loved ones, which is the first thing that I do when I step inside my house is I wash my hands. Um, and that's going to be your biggest defense. Um, washing your hands frequently uh, when you're coming in contact with these high-touch surfaces or when you're coming from the outside world into your home. Um, then um, after that, uh, I, I generally do try to change out of my hospital clothes. But again, I'm in an environment where um, I may be exposed to more things than um, uh, people that are not necessarily health um, healthcare workers. Uh, but I, I think that's a personal choice as to what what you think your um, your comfort level is. I simply do it to get into more comfortable clothes and to get out of my hospital clothes. Um, but the most important thing is going to be make sure that you're washing your hands um, and that if something is soiled or, for example, as we talked about, if someone, for example, has sneezed on your bag or you're concerned about one particular thing, that that gets cleaned um, as you're coming into your home. And then what about uh, your clothes? I've heard some folks suggest that it's a good idea to have your outdoor clothes that you take off as soon as you come inside, and then your indoor clothes, which you know are totally clean. Is is that something that you would suggest as well, keeping those two things separate? I think, again, it, it depends on your risk factor. And um, we're talking about the general risk for the population. This changes if you are someone who is immunocompromised or who is in that high-risk group of patients that are over the age of 65 with comorbidities. Um, that we know are more susceptible to um, uh, more severe complications from uh, COVID-19. And so I, I think that is more of an individual choice. I'm a physician. I do change my clothes um, to try to have a little bit of that barrier. But for someone who maybe is going to the store to pick up some groceries and is coming back home, I'm not sure that's necessary for the average person. Mm. And uh, I've heard that point made a number of different times that the steps that you should be taking do in some ways depend on your own personal risk factors and uh, the risk factors of the people around you. So there isn't necessarily a, a one size fits all to this. Well, uh, a lot of very useful advice there, and uh, we do thank you for it. We have been speaking again to Annalise Roquet-Gardner. She is a clinical fellow of infectious diseases at UC San Francisco. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. Obviously, these were very big topics we took on today, so uh, we couldn't get to everything that we wanted to in our time slot. But you can find expanded interviews with both of our guests here today, giving even more advice on how to stay safe during the outbreak. That is available on our website, posted under the How to Bay Area podcast. Again, that is the How to Bay Area podcast. Or you can find it on your podcast app, 
Just search for How to Bay Area. That is going to do it for now, though. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Be well. Listening to KCBS In Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit KCBSRadio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.